This morning we're going to talk about the key to a contented life. Wouldn't you like to know what the key is to a content life? One man said, and I thought this was interesting, he said most people live their lives crucified between two thieves. The regrets, <clears throat> the regrets of yesterday and the anxieties of tomorrow. The regrets of yesterday and the anxiety of tomorrow. Oh, I wish I had done this different and that different and that different. Oh, how I mourn about that. And then, oh, look what's coming tomorrow to the point to where we're like someone hung on a cross. We're immovable. We're paralyzed because of fear. So this morning, we're going to take God's word and look in Philippians chapter 4, and we're going to see what God's prescription is if you like to term it that way, for worry. You know, the Christian life, and you don't have to live long after you're a believer to find this out, is really no different than anybody else's life. We lose jobs. We have bad neighbors. Our car breaks down. We get demoted. We work with and for hateful people. We get sick. We lose money in our IRA and our retirement account. And all kinds of bad things happen to God's people. Did you know that? If you didn't, you're in for a wake-up call. It happens. And I have news for you. We are not exempt. Your mom and dad are going to die. Maybe, God forbid, your children will die before you do. People in your life will be taken away. Your Christian life does not exempt you from pain or problems. And it's, it's time that you know, we are real with that. I mean, we live in a fallen world where things do happen. And sometimes they appear to us to be really bad things. What do you do when that happens in life? Because certainly we are not exempt from it. But here is a difference between someone who knows Jesus as their Savior, someone who has placed their faith in Christ for eternal life, and someone who has not. The difference is this. We, as believers in Christ, if we're willing to submit ourselves to God, we have a source of strength to draw from that they don't. Now, it's not that we don't want them to have it. It's simply that the believer should be different in the fact that when we face difficulties, when we face hardship, there's one thing that we know that causes us to be different than anyone else, and that is a four-letter word called hope. Hope. Now, hope in the biblical sense is not like it is in our modern-day thought. We think of hope, we think, well, I hope my husband gets me a new car for Christmas, you know. I hope that I get this transfer. I hope that I get a pay raise. I hope that I get good grades. I mean, we can go all over the place, but that is not biblical hope. Biblical hope is best described as absolute certainty with an expectation of it being fulfilled. In other words, there is a truth that I know is going to happen. And now... I am in the process of waiting for that to be worked out. That's what hope is in Scripture. We have a living hope. We have a blessed hope. We have a God of hope. And so in light of that, the believer has to focus their mind not on what they see or what they feel. They have to focus upon what they know. And so when you and I are able to transform our mind, and by the way, this is what the Apostle Paul says, it's the victory of the Christian life. That we transform our mind, Romans chapter 12, unto God's ways and God's word. And when we're able to do that, then we have some type of victory over life's struggles and life's problems. Nehemiah says it best in Nehemiah chapter 8. He says, the joy of the Lord is our strength. So in times of trouble, it's God's joy. Now when you turn to the book of Philippians and you look at it, we may enter this book and read it and just want to pull something out and apply it to our life, but first of all, it's helpful to understand who are they? 
The Philippians were actually a people in the land of Macedonia. I preached on that last week, you remember. Paul said the churches in Macedonia were going to give an offering, and they were inspired by the Corinthians. They were actually a very poor people. The believers there were poor. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul said they didn't hardly have anything to give, but they gave themselves to God first. But they were part of a Roman colony. And this was a place where Roman soldiers would go when they would retire, and they would live there and live out the rest of their life in some type of a peaceful atmosphere. But on Paul's second missionary journeys, he was traveling through Philippi. There were not enough religious people there, not enough Jews for Paul to even visit a synagogue. Most people say there wasn't even one there. Now, in order to have a synagogue, you had to have at least ten Jews There weren't even ten religious Jews there for Paul to go into a synagogue as he normally did and share the gospel. So you know what Paul did? He went down to the river and he found a woman whose name was Lydia. And Lydia was down there. She was a business lady. And if you read Acts chapter 16, the text says God opened her heart and she heard the gospel and she believed. And then Paul went back to her household and he shared the gospel with them. And guess what happened to them? They believed. And so Paul baptized their house after they became saved. And then he went through the streets as Lydia was taking him. You can read this story. It's rather fascinating. And Paul comes upon a little girl who was demon-possessed following Paul around going, You are a preacher of the one true God. And the text says she did this day after day after day. And finally Paul turned around and he had had enough of it. And he said, get out of her. Well, guess what happened? That made Amazon mad. Because she was a business prop for people who were selling false idols. And they got very irritated. So they filed a lawsuit against Paul and drug him out in front of all the Roman courts. And they pulled out these big rods which they would take and tie together. And they pulled him him and Silas's robes off and they beat them across the back and then they threw them in jail that's right this is the same place and while they were in jail everybody was moaning and groaning and the prisoner guard had fallen asleep what did Paul and Silas begin doing you all know the story they began singing songs of praise and the whole place was awakened by their singing And then a great earthquake came right in Philippi and the text says that the bars of the the gates of the prison opened and the shackles fell off. And this Philippian jailer who we talk about stands up and knows that his life is going to be given for the prisoner's life and he starts calling for somebody to turn the lights on and Paul said, fear not, we're all here. And the man in desperation cried out and said, Lord, what, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And what did Paul tell him? What did he say? Get on your knees and cry out and tell God how rotten you are? Did he tell him to crawl ten miles in glass until he bled or crawl up the steps or lay on the concrete floor? What did he tell him? He said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's what he told him. The one requirement for eternal life in Jesus is what? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the Philippian jailer trusts in Christ. And the next thing you know, what is the result? Paul is allowed to go out of the prison. And as he's walking out, they said, uh, Sir, we're going to let you go. And Paul says, Oh, no, you're not. He says, I want to see the chief man here because you have flogged and beat a Roman citizen. And I am a Roman citizen. They went, you're what? And Paul said, I am a Roman citizen. I have the rights of Romans, and now you're going to answer for that. And so the chief man came out. Of course, he was probably the mayor, and he came up to Paul, and he said, let me see your citizenship. And Paul pulled pulled his passport out, and he said, there it is. You have beat me. And the guy said, we are so sorry, sir. Go wherever you wish, but just be quiet. So where did Paul go? Apparently he wandered out somewhere. We don't know the rest of the story. And Paul and Lydia and some other people, we're going to see two ladies in chapter 4, Eudoia and Sintiki, went out and they were sharing the gospel in the marketplaces, in the streets, and obviously enough people believed the gospel to start a church. 
And so when Paul writes this letter to the Philippians, he says, I'm writing this to the pastors and deacons of the church. So it was enough to establish a wonderful congregation of people who loved the Apostle Paul and throughout his ministry stood with him and sent him gifts and sent him workers that wherever Paul was, the Philippians were. So when Paul opens this letter to the Philippians, he says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. You are always in my heart because you were always with me. Most people believe Paul wrote this letter because the believed to be pastor whose name was Epaphroditus was about ready to die. And Paul wrote the letter back to them and told them, hey, your pastor's going to live. And we're so thankful and I'm sending him back to give thanks and goodness. And then the second reason was he wrote this letter so they could rejoice. Sixteen times I think the word rejoice is in the Greek text in this book. So if you want a book that you need help lifting your spirits, Philippians is the book to read. Now I can only read a few verses, so let's get to them. I'm going to read first in the ESV, and then I'm going to read in the New Living Translation, just to give you a comparison of how this is read. Paul writes this, Therefore, my brothers, who I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Eudoia and entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Now in your mind, underline that phrase, the Lord is at hand. You're going to see a slight difference here in just a moment. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Does anybody remember the title to my sermon? Garrison, Garrison. Your heart. This is where the term garrison comes from. Guard your heart. It's a military term which actually talks about when, when soldiers surround and encompass something to guard it. And so Paul here uses a very cultural relevant term. Every Philippian would have known this. They were worried and fretting and arguing and grumbling. And Paul tells them, here is the cure for your worried heart. Do these steps and God will, like a military army, gather around your heart and your mind and he will protect you and give you his peace. Now what are those wonderful steps? Well, after I read the New Living Translation, we'll look. Listen to what Paul says in this version. I love this translation. If y'all haven't bought one for devotions, you need to get one. New Living Translation. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stay true to the Lord. I love you and long to see you, dear friends, for you are my joy and the crown I receive for my work. Now I appeal to Judea and Syntyche, please, because you belong to the Lord, settle your disagreement. Now wouldn't you like to know what they were arguing over? Most people believe that it was probably, probably something to do well, I won't even tell you. You can study on your own. Please, he says, because you belong to the Lord, settle your disagreement. And I ask you, my true partner, to help these two women. For they worked hard with me in telling others the good news. They worked along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are written in the book of life. Always be full of joy in the Lord. Don't you like that? Always be full of joy in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice. Wow, that captures the, the Greek text. I mean, it captured it to a T. 
Now notice what Paul says. Let everyone see that you are considerate in all you do. Remember, the Lord is coming soon. Now, do you remember the difference? The Lord is at hand. The New Living Translation says the Lord is coming soon. Here's a little translation difference, which I don't have time to get into, but one, is he near? I mean, you know, let your gentleness be known because he's right here beside you. Or be gentle with everyone because soon Jesus is coming. Which one is it? ESV says Jesus is here. New Living Translation says he's coming soon. Which, how do you know what Paul means? Just say yes. It's both of them. Good. Now, back to the passage. Tell God, I'm sorry, remember the Lord is coming soon. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank Him for all He has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will garrison, will, will guard. His peace will come around you like a military army surrounds a fort. His peace will garrison your hearts, your heart, your inner being. And His peace will garrison your mind, which is what we are to control, our thoughts, as you live in Christ Jesus. Wow, this is a great passage to memorize. Father, I pray you'll bless your word this morning as your spirit has to do the work in our heart. We can see the words on the page, but we need them translated into our life. So help us to do that this morning, I do pray. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So what are four steps? By the way, there's an offering envelope. You ought to write this down in your bulletin or offering envelope if you didn't use it this morning for what you should. Uh, Write it on the back of your bulletin. Four steps. Four steps to help a believer secure God's peace. What are these steps? Step number one, intentionally rejoice. Now you have to hear me for a moment. There are times that come up in every believer's life. I'm talking to believers this morning. I'm talking to people who have trusted Christ, believed on Him for eternal life. There are times that come up in our life that we will not naturally, humanly rejoice. Because looking at it from our perspective, these things are not good. Okay, I could go down a litany of lists. I'm just looking in our congregation here, and I can just, I, I'm, I'm trying to read your mind. This is what you do when you preach. What are my people thinking? I see people that had diagnosis of cancer. I know people who have had a broken marriage. I know people who have had ch- problems with their children. People who have lost a job. People who have had demotions. When all of these, what we think are really bad things that come in our life, You say to yourself, I don't feel like rejoicing. That is exactly when you need to rejoice the most. You say, well, I'll I'll tell you right now, I don't feel like it. Paul did not say, if you feel like it, rejoice in the Lord. He didn't say, if everything is going right and everything is wonderful, rejoice in the Lord. No, hear me carefully. He is in the context of people who are in conflict and tension. He has just named two ladies who are in a, an argument with each other. This could lead to a church split. And Paul tells these two ladies and the whole church, he says, this is what you're to do even when you don't feel like it. Intentionally rejoice. Do you know what intentional means? Intentional means on purpose... For a purpose. You should write that down. That's good. That's gold. On purpose, for a purpose. So let me read it that way. On purpose and for a purpose, you should rejoice no matter what circumstance you're in. Now how can a person actually do that? Okay, Paul says it. He, he got it from the Holy Spirit. God, God is the one who is actually speaking this. And it's not a suggestion. These are imperatives. You all know what that is in English? When, you're, when your parents give you an imperative, take out the garbage. 
clean your room. Or when they start driving, and every parent really gets their prayer life right when your kids start driving, slow down. Those are commands. This is a command for every Christian. Intentionally rejoice. When you don't feel like it, find something to rejoice about. Now, now what can a believer rejoice about whenever we don't feel like it? Well, what is one thing in our life that doesn't change? Please don't say, my mom or my dad, because here's the problem, folks. You all hear me carefully. When we put our hope in people with feet of clay, they will eventually crumble. Your parent, your mom, dad, your girlfriend, your husband, your children, your boss, your, your uh, football player, your, your favorite singer, every human has feet of clay and they will crumble. So the only thing, the only source, the only person that we can find hope in is God. So God is the God who never changes. So this requires some study and knowledge on God's people's part. We have to know who God is. And the first thing believers ask, and I know because I've asked this several times in my life, how can a good God allow things to happen, bad things to happen to people? We begin to rationalize like this. Is God all-powerful? Yes. Can God do whatever He wants to change whatever? Yes. Okay, if those two things are true, then how can God allow something bad to happen to me? See, this is how we realize and this is how we think. You know, sometimes people say, well, if I could only be God just for a week, I could straighten everything out. Oh, could you? You know, well, if I was God, I could uh, stop all the crime... I could stop all the hunger. I could stop all these things. Well, you know what? If you had the power of God, maybe you could. But as one person said, but if you had the wisdom of God, maybe you wouldn't. Folks, God knows what He's doing. But His people have to learn to trust Him. Now that doesn't mean, please hear me carefully here, I'm I'm not a fatalist. You know, if I take my finger and lay it right here on the edge of this table and I take my iPhone up here, you ready? And I, and I rear back and I hit my finger as hard as I can. It's going to hurt. It's going to bleed. And I might even break it. Was that the will of God that I do that? Please say no. <laughs> yeah, I, I have heard people say ridiculousness like that. Well, that must have been the will of God. Oh, please. Read your Bible. There's a difference between the moral will of God and the permissive will. The moral will of God, we are to be thankful, we are to be holy, we are to be pure. That is the moral will of God. Do you know the permissive will of God? He'll let me, if I'm dumb enough, He'll let me hold my finger there and rear back with a hammer and hit my finger and just smash the end of it off. He'll let me, if I choose to be an idiot and drive down the road when there's that much rain water, He'll let me hydroplane off the road and wreck. That's in his permissive will. I mean, listen folks, if I'm dumb enough to do that, I'll be, I'll be able to pay the consequence for it. This is how God has established his laws. Now hear me carefully. If I'm living my life, and there's no reason for judgment in my life, or there's no reason for God to discipline me, if I'm not doing something asking for God to come down with his paddle, and take me to the woodshed and something bad happens in my life, I am able to step back from that and say, Lord, I know that you are good and I know that you have a plan for my life and I certainly don't understand what is happening here. But I'm willing to trust you in this and rejoice in spite of my circumstances. Whatever the reason you have for this, I can't see it now, but I'm willing to trust you. Now let me share something with you folks. An older man taught me this one time. He said, the level of spiritual maturity is not in the fact that people can quote 66 books and memorize 500 verses. He said, it's the fact that they trust God enough to believe Him when things don't make sense. 
when they can't understand or explain why something's happening, yet they trust God and they believe that God is going to work these things out for good, that is the mark of spiritual maturity. And so if we can get ourselves in a position where we can trust God like this and we can rejoice intentionally, this is step one to peace. Now what's step two? By the way, I have to read this quote to you. Kent Hughes writes in his commentary, Christian joy is, basic, is a basic and constant orientation of the Christian life. Plowing down the road, filled with joy. He says it's the fruit and evidence of a relationship with the Lord. It comes from what the Lord has done in the past, from what the Lord is doing now, and from the hope of what He will do in the future. You know, when, when things happen in our life and we don't like it and we can't explain it, we don't understand it, what is a believer's default setting? Whatever it is now, God's going to make it better in the future. He's working things now for my good, even though I don't understand them, because one day the great reversal is going to take place. By the way, if you've never studied the reversals in the Bible, it is fascinating. I've been reading a book on this. The reversals in the Scripture. All the reversals, all the things that God takes that appear to be bad, and God later turns them for good. That sounds like a good sermon series, then I might have to preach that. Those who set their hearts to rejoice in the Lord always will not only stand firm chapter 4, verse 1, but will be receptive to the peace of God that overcomes the discords that attack the body of Christ. So, intentionally rejoice. Step number two, practice gentleness. Practice gentleness. In the ESV, this verse is translated this way. Notice what Paul says. Um, Do not be anxious I'm sorry, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Reasonableness. Let your reasonableness... Well, you put up there gentleness. Yes, I did. You want to know why? Because I think the word actually means gentleness. So this is what Paul's saying. Now remember, he's writing, two ladies are fussing and arguing. He's talking to the church as a whole now, and he says, now listen to my admonition. When things aren't going well, rejoice always even if you don't feel like it. And then, the second step to peace is, practice gentleness in your life and in your relationship with others, believers and unbelievers. Now, if you don't hear anything else today, hear this. What is the opposite of gentleness? You all answer me. Wrath, harshness, Anger, bitterness, hatefulness. I mean, you know, I could go down the list here. Now, I want you to hear me carefully. As a believer, when you respond to people with anger and bitterness and hatefulness and wrath and just, you know, blah, 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 peace will leave your life. I promise you, you will not find it. If you do not rejoice, what's the opposite of rejoicing, by the way? Grumbling complaining, fussing, poor, poor me. Now, hear me now. I'm trying to help you practical here. If we grumble and complain and we're hateful toward people, we will never experience God's peace surrounding our heart. So if I were counseling, if I were Greg Cooney, you know, Greg's a counselor, we have some other biblical counselors here. If I were talking to you now, and I'm imagining you talking back to me, and you're telling me about all these issues that go on in your life, and I'm thinking about Philippians 4, I'm, I'm beginning now to get below the surface. It's, it's not the flat tire. It's not because somebody spilled Gatorade in your seat. Let, let's get on down and start peeling the onion back till we get right down to the middle of it, and we start asking ourselves, is this the descriptor of our core being as a believer? Are we rejoicing even though things aren't well? Uh, or are we grumbling? Are we rejoicing or are we complaining? And then the second thing is, we're, I'm going to start talking to you about how you treat your children, how you treat your wife, how you treat your neighbor, your co-worker. 
Are you a, a nice person? Or are you someone that's really hard to get along with? I mean, you know, it's easy to be nice in front of people, but sometimes it's hard to be nice when you're alone with people you live with. Sometimes people may put on a face in a certain way, but are they the same when they're away? And by the way, you know, that's what character is. Character, when we say we're working on our character, that means we are right now what we are somewhere else and when nobody's seeing us. We get along wonderful. You know, sometimes, sometimes church people can be very mean people. Did you all hear about the man that was stranded on the island? He was stranded on an island and somebody saw a little smoke coming up and they went over to check him out and they stopped in and they saw this man sitting there with two, three huts on the island. They went up to him and they said, Sir, is there anyone else with you? He said, No, I'm living here by myself. And they said, oh, Okay, well, we saw these three huts. We didn't know what was going on. He said, Yeah. He said, Well, what are they? And the man said, Well, that hut number one is where I live. And hut number two is where I go to church. And they said, well, what's hut number three? He said, that's where I used to go to church. <laughs> Believers can be hateful. And this, the, step, the step to peace is that we learn to be gentle. Now, what is it that causes us to not want to be gentle with people? Okay? Now, think with me. When, when our expectations are rocked by the response of someone else, when they don't do or say or act like we think they should, what is our immediate response? Well, probably not gentleness. But here's the issue. When we are dealing with humans, we need to understand that people are going to be people. What is it that people do? They oftentimes please self. Self is always first. They, they are save face. I mean, this is our nature, folks. People do everything to make themselves appear to be as good and as wonderful as they can be. And so we are expecting a sin-filled, sinful person to respond in a way that we think they should. That probably is a letdown. So if we go into a relationship expecting something not to happen, then we won't be disappointed. I could give you illustration after illustration here, but nevertheless, I'll move on. My point is simply this. When things don't go our way, what does Paul tell us to do? He says, in our relationships, we are to respond and to act in gentleness. Now, what does that look like? I'll give you a personal illustration. One, David and I were flying back from Germany. We had Landed in Cairo, we were, we were leaving the airport, coming back to Germany. You know, my son is sitting there. Well, there was a big long line. We had a long layover. They'd already put us through two or three screenings. You know, you have to take all your clothes off and all your shoes and your belt and everything out of your bag. We'd done been through this twice. We'd been up all night. We're standing there in line, and the, the, the stewardess from our airplane came over to get in line, and they made them go through the same line as everybody else. Now, can you imagine this? Lines all the way back to the door. She puts her bag off, and she's going to get out, and the man traveling with us told her, he said, ma'am, come on and just get right in front of us. We were right near the line. Well, there was a particular older man. He couldn't have been any taller than that, and probably 80 years old. He wasn't that old. It's about 60 and he, he and his wife, he and his wife were traveling together, and he said, ma'am, ma'am, kind of hateful-like. And, you know, I'd been up for several hours, and I said, sir, she's an air stewardess. I said, we're going to let her get in front of us. She's got a plane. Uh, boy, he lit in. I mean, he, he lit in. And I stood there. And of course, David was behind me. Kept me about. It didn't matter if he was there. I'd, I'd try to react the same way. So what I wanted to do, I'm just going to be honest with you, because he was really hateful. What I wanted to do was grab him with one arm and just, you know, take him for a ride down the corridor. But the other side of me started looking. Look, I, I took one look at his wife while he was going off, and her face said it all. She just went. 
And as I began to look at her, I thought to myself, you know, the worst thing you could ever do is try to talk to this guy. I mean, just, just don't even answer back. Just, you know, we were going to let her in front. If you like it or don't like it or whatever your reason, you can get over it. But the point is, we're not going to talk back. Now, I could have had a World War III right there. But I, did, I didn't answer the guy back. I let him say what he wanted to say. And I just stood in line and I turned around and I said, would you like to get in front of us? You can get right up here in front if you want to. It won't bother me a bit if you're in a hurry. No, I'll stand right here. Okay, sir. If you change your mind, let me know. <laughs> and when I looked back at his wife, she just went. And, and here's what I began to think to myself. Thank God I didn't marry that. <laughs> and this poor woman... Now, I don't know whether he was a believer or not, folks. And here's why I say that. Do you know that believers can act that way? One of the most disappointing times, and I've probably told you this story before, but I say it to let you know this is who we are. One of my most disappointing times, Karen and I were following one of my favorite professors out to eat. We were going through a line in a certain state that's a couple of states away from here. I wouldn't dare say the name. But while we were in line, this particular person thought that he was too important to wait in line and he jumped out and cut in front of about six or eight cars and cut them off to get in line so that they could get to the restaurant sooner. And they people were honking their horn and flashing their lights. And, you know, he went, and I began to think to myself, well, Christians are not exempt, are they? They're not, we're not exempt. We, we act and react in ways that aren't honoring. But if we want peace, when we, we react, what are we supposed to do? We are to respond in gentleness. Now there's a third step, and that is, in light of all this and what's going on, I mean, Paul, he, he's in a gold mine here, isn't he? What's the third step he says? He says, we are to stop worrying. Stop worrying, and instead, we are to trust in God's providence. Chapter 4, verse 6, Paul says, Do not be anxious about anything. Worry. Do not be anxious. What is worry? Worry comes from an old English word which means to strangle. Did you know that? This is actually what happens when we worry. It strangles us. From the spiritual point of view, worrying is basically wrong thinking. We're thinking wrong about something. We're not trusting what God has for us. And we think somehow that by our worrying, we're going to actually change the circumstance. Did you know that if somebody tells you, stop worrying, you can't? As a matter of fact, I'm going to be bluntly honest here with you. I have what's called white coat syndrome when it comes to blood pressure. I didn't know this about myself. White coat syndrome is when you, when you feel a, a cuff go around your arm and you're getting ready to have your blood pressure, your heart spikes. And, you know, I was sitting there thinking, you know, my blood pressure is going up. What's going on here? Don't worry. Stop, you know, be, be anxious for nothing and everything. I pray in supplication. Thanksgiving. I'm quoting the verse. It doesn't do a bit of good. That, it doesn't do a bit of good. Life, life struggles come. You know, we all have them. Family problems, issues in our family. And I start worrying. I start be anxious for nothing, but in everything. Start quoting scripture. You know, be thankful. Give thanks. I start giving thanks to God. My worry doesn't go away. I'm sitting here going, what's the matter with me? I know this. I know this to be true. I'm quoting scripture. I'm telling, I'm telling myself what I'm telling you, and my worry doesn't go away. So I, now I begin to start digging. Why do I worry? You want to know why you worry and why I worry? This is a big secret. You ready? Because you're a sinner. And I'm a sinner. And we have a sin nature. And when we trust Christ as our Savior, our sin nature does not go away. And do you realize that part of us having a sin nature is that we have this failed trust in God. 
And no matter how spiritual you think you are, I guarantee you that circumstances can come in life that will cause you to worry. You will probably worry after you hear this sermon. I, I don't think this sermon is going to take away any worry that you, you have. But I'm going to tell you something. There are steps to help us not to worry as much as we do. I don't know if that's me or not. It's keeping you all awake because I see it waking some of you up. <clears throat> But what is Paul telling us? He's saying that we are to not be anxious. We are to stop worrying about anything. And in light of that, we are to instead do something different. Whenever worry comes, Paul's going to tell us next, we are to pray. But not just pray. We're to do something that doesn't really sink in until we hear it. And I'll get to that in just a second. But did you know that Dr. Walter Cavert reported a survey on worry that indicated that only 8% of the things that people worried about were really legitimate matters of concern? 8%. I'm worried about this. I'm worried about that. I'm... Only 8% are really legitimate. And then he says the other 92% were either imaginary, they never happened, or they involved matters over which people had no control anyway. Now that third one's the one I want to focus on. Here's a whole sermon. Three, three things to worry about. One's imaginary things. We just dream. You know, people worry that they're not able to worry. One, one pastor was talking to a lady and she said, I'm afraid to give up my worrying because then I won't have nothing to worry about. And that's basically how some people are. Worry warts. I had people in my family that were that way. Just worry about imaginary things. And then, things that they just make up. Oh, such and such thinks this about me. Oh, they're going to do this. Oh, they're, I mean, oh, I bet they think this. Oh, I bet this is... I mean, you're just dreaming that. How do you know that's real? So, imaginary. But now, things that are out of our control. Now, I want you to think about this. You and I have absolutely no control over what's going to happen tomorrow. Did you know that? We, we have zero control. We have no control over inflation. We have no control over politics and economy. We have one vote, one voice, and that's about the extent of your control. Do you know that you can't control Russia invading Ukraine? You can't control whether Turkey is going to invade Syria because you know that's getting ready to happen. We can't, uh, we, we can't control whether Iran is going to go through with their nuclear deal and then try to bomb Israel or what they're going to do to the West, we have no control. None. And you can't control your neighbor or your boss. And listen to me, you really can't even control your children. So why are we worrying about what we can't control? Because Jesus had something to say about this in Matthew chapter 6. And what did he tell us? Stop worrying. Look at the birds. Next time we worry, look out at the birds. God takes care of his birds. Even though there's buzzards and hawks and everything else up there, God takes care of them. And don't you think he cares more about you? And by the way, should we spend our time worrying about tomorrow? Don't waste your, your time. Because tomorrow will have enough struggles of its own. Just get through the day and be thankful and enjoy it. So stop worrying. And then the fourth step is start praying. Now notice what Paul says here because he doesn't just say pray. This is where we miss this. What does he say? I'm in the end of verse 6. Do not be anxious or stop worrying about anything, but in everything... And you know what everything means? Everything. So, when we are worrying, when we are anxious, we are to rejoice, we are to be gentle, we are not to be a worrywart, but instead, we are to pray with thanksgiving. And here's the problem. Here's why most of us don't experience peace. Because we never give thanks in our prayers. You know what we say? 
Oh, Lord. Oh, Father. This, 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 this. Help me, help me, help me, help me, help me. Now, I'm not saying that's bad. But listen carefully to what Paul says, and you should underline this. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. With prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Now here's the turnaround. When all these things begin to happen, we turn our problems into a praise ceremony. What do we find to be thankful for? Well, I talked about some of this last week, but let's not think about the things that can change. You're, you're thankful for a Ford, it can break down on the way home. You're thankful for a Chevrolet, it probably will break down on the way home. But, so don't put your hope in things that are not going to happen. Instead, remember, I'm trying to help you here. Get your hope up above something that doesn't change. So when we give thanks, we start giving thanks to God for His goodness. Have you ever thanked God for a problem? Have you? You know, if you read the Apostle Paul, this is actually what he did. He, he began to thank God for the bad times in his life. By the way, in case you think Paul was sitting in the Marriott Mirage, he was actually in prison when he wrote this letter. And he's telling them to rejoice. You want to know how Paul knew that giving thanks shakes the world, gets God's attention? Well, let's go back to the Philippian jail. He had been beaten. He had been falsely imprisoned. He was now getting ready to get beat again the next day. And what happened? He began to pray and sing and give thanks. And what happened? God intervened. And the Philippians knew that. And so Paul's now telling these people, pray with thanksgiving. Dear, dear Father, I don't know why this happened in my life, but I want to give you thanks. Because you, the unchangeable and good God, I can't see this, Father, but somehow or another in your plan, you are going to use this to make me more like Jesus. You're going to take this pain in my life and one day, because you're the God of reversal, you're going to change that and you're going to turn that into something that will bring you glory. So Father, even though I can't explain it and I can't understand you because you are mysterious, I would have thought you would have acted this way, but you didn't. So Father, I am trusting you. Do with it as you wish and help me to rejoice irregardless of the situation and however it turns out. Just help me to be thankful because I'm thankful for you. And I'm telling you folks, when we do that, doesn't mean it, it all goes away, but I'm going to tell you what happens. And you find it in verse 7. You ready? So when we intentionally rejoice... Practice gentleness. Stop worrying. Start praying with thanksgiving. What does Paul say is the result? Verse 7, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will garrison your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God. You say, well, can you explain that to me? Well, listen to what Paul says. It surpasses understanding. You cannot explain it. You can only experience it. Have you ever been upon someone and said, I don't know how this person can remain that calm in that circumstance. And, and you can't explain it. And they should be you know, panicking. They should be wild. They should, there are all kinds of things you have. Uh, let me tell you, I'll help you explain it. The peace of God which passes all understanding, is guarding their heart and their mind in Christ Jesus. It's, it's God's grace. And He does that. I'll tell you the most fascinating thing, and it, it really bewildered me, was when the family that went to a church in Giles was away on a, a, a travel date, 
and a propane natural gas line exploded and killed almost all of their children. I forget how many was it, Karen? Seven of nine. It was just unthinkable. The father and the mother were up there. Can you all imagine seven caskets? And this dad stands up and this is what he said. We have determined beforehand that we will not ask the question, why? We won't do it. Don't you ask us? And we, we're not going to ask God because it's beyond us. We will not ask it. A few years later, that father, who was a health and fitness fanatic, ran, mountain climbed, rock rock climbed, went on an exercise hike and came back home and went to get in his car and died of a massive heart attack just a few years ago. His name was Mark Bryant. I attended Mark's funeral and his wife Joyce spoke. Here's this woman who has buried seven of her young children under the teenage years, teenage and under, and now her husband died left her with all this stuff. I mean, here, and Joyce, they, they wanted her to speak. And she stood up in front of, I don't know how many people were there, six, seven hundred, I can't even tell you. It was, a, it was so packed, people were standing around the edges. And she, stu- she stands up and she begins to talk. And I'm going to tell you something, I've never heard a better message in my life on the, on the trust in the providence of God. She didn't try to explain it. She didn't try to understand it. She simply was up there as a testimony to trust God. And you know what had happened? I mean, I actually witnessed Philippians 4-7 lived out in this dear woman's life. As she began to talk, she allowed the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, to guard her heart and her mind in Christ Jesus. And I want to tell you, I'll never, as long as I live, I'll never forget that celebration service where that wife stood up and gave God praise. And I thought to myself, I don't ever want to go through her circumstances. Ever. Ever. But this is what I said to my heart. If I ever do, Lord, may you give me the grace to respond like her. Because she is a godly woman. And I was so thankful for her. Father, thank you this morning for your word. And although it's hard, and sometimes it's even hard to explain, hard to understand, we know, Father, that you're true to your word and you do exactly what you say. And Father, I'm not sure of what circumstances people are going through here this morning. Maybe they're dire, tragic circumstances. Beyond our life control, help us Oh, Father, to see the steps that we need to take to bring your peace. And help us to do that, we do pray in Jesus' name. Amen.